This is the Living Vertizano podcast, brought to you by The Church at Riverstone, a fellowship of the Church of the Nazarene in Madera, California. Our episode today focuses on Matthew chapter 26, verses 1 through 16. Together, we will be discussing our willingness to trade everything for Christ. Hi, everybody. I'm Nick. I'm Natasha. I'm Brittany. I'm Derek. And we are the Living Vertizontal Podcast, uh, back with you to continue working our way through Matthew. Um, As a quick reminder, last week we finished our conversations through Matthew chapter 25, looking at verses 31 through 46. Uh, And in those verses, Jesus talked about uh, the separation of the sheep and the goats, um, and together we discuss Christ's call to remain focused on him and to rest in the peace of knowing that he is our just advocate. Uh, This week, we're going to be turning uh, into Matthew chapter 26, looking at verses 1 to 16. And this is the beginning of the final narrative block of Matthew. Uh, With this, we will discuss the plot to kill Jesus, we will look at Jesus's anointing and then also Judas's plan to betray Jesus. Uh, and I believe today we have Natasha reading for us. So Natasha, would you uh, mind reading Matthew 26, 1 to 16? I can do that. Matthew 26, verse 1. When Jesus had finished saying all these things, he said to his disciples, As you know, the Passover is two days away and the Son of Man will be handed over to be crucified. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people assembled in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and they schemed to arrest Jesus secretly and kill him. But not during the festival, they said, or there may be a riot among the people. While Jesus was in Bethany, in the home of Simon the leper, a woman came to him with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume which she poured on his head as he was reclining at the table. When the disciples saw this, they were indignant. Why this waste, they asked. This perfume could have been sold at a high price and the money given to the poor. Aware of this, Jesus said to them, Why are you bothering this woman? She has done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you, but you will not always have me. When she poured this perfume on my body, She did it to prepare me for burial. Truly, I tell you, wherever this gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Then one of the twelve, the one called Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and asked, What are you willing to give me if I deliver him over to you? So they counted out for him thirty pieces of silver. From then on, Judas watched for an opportunity to hand him over. All right. Thank you for reading that for us. Um, really quick, before we move into a conversation about this particular reading, um, just to establish some, I guess, context for where we are in the movement of Matthew, uh, I, in the intro, uh, made the statement that it's the the... Final, like transition to the final narrative block. And and by that, I mean uh, up to this point, so I think it's what, 24, 25, and 26 off the top of my head, 
um, is like a teaching block where there is very uh, focused and directed uh, teaching that Jesus is doing to his disciples or to those around him. Um, and it's the, the focus of those chapters is specifically the teaching itself. Um, and then when you move into 26, verse one actually says when Jesus had finished saying all these things. So wrapping up with a bow, all of these teachings that he has been doing, he then turns and says to his disciples. And so it's, it's marking this transition point now to where the, the teaching is going to become, um, less of the focus going forward. And now it's a movement that becomes the focus. So before it was the content and now it's like the, the movement again towards the cross. Um, and so this marks the beginning of that final movement that we have towards the cross. And, um, when we're also thinking about this particular conversation that we jump into today, um, this marks the the beginning of the passion narrative is what it would be kind of identified as which passion it, the the passion narrative is like that final week of Jesus's walking of the earth in his ministry and so this is the beginning of that so um as we think about like holy week when we think about the the christian calendar um this would would probably fall like on on wednesday of holy week where this specific situation, Jesus having this conversation with his disciples, uh, Jesus being anointed, and then Judas uh, making the decision to betray him is is all happening. Um, so just so we have a point of reference maybe for this conversation today and then also going forward, that's kind of where we are in the story of Jesus. And so by Holy Week, we're talking about the week that's leading up to Easter specifically. Right. And right. so this is the Wednesday before before we head into to Easter Sunday. And and so kind of in the middle, he's he's come in, he's entered into Jerusalem riding on the donkey. That happened this past Sunday, Palm right. Sunday. And so now here we are in the middle of the week. Yes, exactly. And so I guess with that, let's jump into a more focused conversation on just specifically, you know, 26, one to uh, 16. Um, and in beginning that conversation, I, I think the, the first thing that really grabbed my attention in reading this was the, the two different like accounts or the, the two different um statements about Jesus's upcoming death. So first in, in verses one and two, you have Jesus predicting his death. And there's some interesting things about, um, what Jesus is, the words that Jesus is choose, Jesus chooses to use here. Um, but I'll get to go back to that in a second. So verses one and two, you have Jesus predicting his death. And then verses three, four, and five, you have the, the religious elite, religious officials, plotting and planning his death. And, um, as I was thinking about this, essentially you have the two kingdoms at work here. You, when Jesus predicts his death, you have this divine affirmation that that is in fact the direction that Jesus's life is heading, that, that this is the plan there. This is all in line with God's intention. And, and so you have that affirmation present. And then subsequent to that, you have the chief priests 
plotting and planning to to kill Jesus. And so like there's this there's this separate plan that is not necessarily God's intention, right? Like the betrayal part of it, the the de- killing of Jesus because they're threatened by him. Like that's not God's perfect plan for them, I don't think. Um and yet that's being revealed here. And so it's it's like both of them are working to the same end, right? Jesus says, I'm going to die. They are plotting for his death. They are both working towards Jesus's death on the cross, but they're doing it for two separate reasons, right? You have God doing it for the salvation of the world, and you have the the religious elite doing it in hopes of saving face or protecting their own authority in the world. Um, so I thought that was really interesting. But to go back to um, Jesus's prediction of his death, uh, it is this is the fourth prediction in Matthew of that Jesus gives of his coming death. It is, however, the first prediction that is not also accompanied by a prediction of his subsequent resurrection. It is simply a statement of my death is coming, but it is framed in a reference to the Passover meal. And I think that that is very important as Jesus is continuing to try to help his followers understand the lens through which they need to be like, understand the lens through which they need to be understanding the events that are to come. That this death does not mark the uh, end of his like existence as Messiah. It actually marks the fulfillment of what that looks like. So I think, yeah, that that was that was really what what stuck out to me first. You were talking about the the predictions. I, I found in in studying that. The first prediction that that Jesus told his disciples about in chapter 16, verse 21, references the very same individuals that are gathering to plot his death. So, you know, what what Jesus spoke is is being fulfilled as he's, you know, beginning to share that he is the Passover lamb, that his blood will be what, what saves the people this time around. Right. It's like a... It's like a perfect book ending. Like if if the first time that he predicts his death, he says it's going to be these people who are doing it, and then this final time that he's predicting his death, like cut scene, simultaneously to Jesus predicting his death, there's this group of people that he predicted would be planning his death are actually in the process of planning his death. It's like this, this perfect divine book into what's going on. Another thing I think that I was drawn to in this this first little uh, set of verses um, begin before we get into Jesus being anointed and this conversation about Judas is in verse five the the chief priests and the elders are still in their scheming. They're so concerned about external factors. Um, they're so convinced that their way is right. Like they have no, um, they have no concern for God's thoughts necessarily on this 
issue. At least it's not something that seems to be openly discussed. Um, and so they, they, in verse five, it says, but not during the festival, they said, or there may be a riot among the people. And so again, the, the Jews were being occupied by the Roman empire. And so they had to be very, very careful of rioting. And they knew that Jesus had gained extreme popularity among the people because he had been doing miraculous healings and driving out demons and doing all these incredible things that were consistent with who the prophesied Messiah was. So the crowds were for him. And so there was this fear that if they were to arrest him, that the crowds might 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 turn and they they might cause this this rioting and if the rioting um had occurred which ironically i feel like the chief priests and elders before had tried to use the rioting to their advantage right Mm -hmm. by trying to say that jesus was causing the riots but now they don't want the riots right because they don't want to be the cause of the right and so it's you know so they're they're so calculated and so planned in their their how they will arrest him and how it will be best and smoothest and it's so sly it just it reeks of evil mm-hmm. and i i feel like i feel like there's just not much regard there's so much logic and planning in this that there's not a whole lot of regard for spiritual consultation and these are the chief priests right these are the people who mm-hmm. the jews are relying on for dialogue with god about how to handle these things. And yet he seems to be completely absent from the conversations that are being had about how to rid this place of this Messiah claimer. You talked about like earlier and referencing the previous week, the passage from the previous week, like where our focus is. And so like, as we shift to this, this next portion of of the passage, we see someone who has their focus on Jesus and what that looks like, or this recognition of Jesus, and what that looks like. And then like we end with a contrast of not recognizing who Jesus is or losing focus of who Jesus is. And so like as we like go through these two, we will see that that really played out. Mm-hmm. What it means to focus on Jesus or to recognize Jesus as the Passover lamb. Like we have somebody that's gonna come and give something uh, like buy something that cost uh, is of great value nearly a year's wage and and do so to anoint Jesus as the Passover lamb and yet we see someone else who doesn't see that who doesn't recognize Jesus as as the lamb and is willing to reject and lose focus on who he is even though we spent a great deal of time with him yeah I feel like I don't remember how many weeks ago it was. <laughs> it's been a bit. Um, but I remember we we had this conversation about like when you come face to face with who Christ is or you come face to face with the kingdom, like you have two choices, right? Like you can either accept it or you can reject it. And I feel like right here in the first five verses, we are coming, we as the reader, them as the disciples are coming face to face with the reality of the kingdom. And as we move forward into the two different conversations that follow between the, the woman who anoints him and then Judas, you see the two potential responses played out. 
Like you see how it looks to embrace the kingdom and you see how it looks to reject the kingdom and, and then the subsequent cost associated with that. And even I think the rejection of the kingdom can be less overt than just rejecting it. I mean, I think it can become a very slippery slope to reject the kingdom. Um, One thing leads to the next. I'm guessing Judas was, you know, it just for him, he just he lost sight. He lost sight of Jesus. He Mm -hmm. lost sight of who he was and what his what his calling was and what his mission was, even for a second. And it had a, a dramatic effect on, on his life and the lives of everyone around him. We even had somebody use the example of trust, like trust comparing like, you know, uh, betraying Jesus for the 30 pieces of silver. But like in our lives, we can, we can say, I trust Jesus. But then like when it comes to a hard time, we'll reach out to somebody else instead of Jesus and like try to you know, seek counsel and not that seeking counsel is a bad thing, but like we'll reach out to somebody thinking that, that, you know, they know better than us or they have the answer. Um, and really like when that was said at our table, I was like, man, that's, that's pretty good insight. Like that's not, that's not where my mind was at. So it, it doesn't have to be, you know, this big overt thing. Like you said, Natasha, it can start so small. Well, it's, is, is Jesus the Lord of your life or is he not? If he's Lord of your life, you're going to give it all. Or if he's not, you're going to look for a way to save yourself. You know, if you, you see, you know, Judas, the disciples, they see what's coming. He's telling them, I'm going to die. And he's telling them, she's preparing me for burial. That's scary. If this person that you thought was coming and was going to save, mm-hmm. just he was coming to save the day. And, you know, he's been talking, you know, for some time about how, that he was going to die, that he was going to die. But now he's talking about a burial. And that's a, that's a whole, you know, that's a big deal. And the Judas's response is, oh, no, I need to save myself. I need to figure out what I'm going to do because he's not going to save me because he can't see. Because he's going to be dead. Sees. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah. And he can't see what Jesus sees. And he, yeah. he just sees. This man who says he's going to save me, it says he's going to die. So he's not going to be able to help me. I need to figure it out on my own. And how many times do we do that? Right. When, you know, we, Jesus puts us in a situation where like, okay, Jesus, I'm going to trust you. But the moment something doesn't go the way you think it should go, you're like, okay, I got to figure this out. I have to think about this. I have to plan. I have to make sure I'm okay. Mm-hmm. Instead of just trusting that Jesus is going to take care of it all. I think in merging both your conversation, Derek and Brittany's together, I feel like we come to this place where really, I think we have to ask ourselves, how real is Jesus to me actually? Because ultimately that's why we go get advice from someone else. Well, I can't hear him. Well, like he's not going to talk to me. Like I need to be talked to, you know? And so we, or even he's not going to, he's not going to meet my need in the way I need. Or he isn't talking to me. Mm like a refusal to say he's actually speaking. Yeah, exactly. And so I think I think it's important for us to spend time contemplating the fact that he is actually here with us. And do we, you know, do I actually believe that? Or is this just something I say 
because I know it with my head, but I don't know it with my heart or my experience. Well, a couple of weeks ago, we talked about how, who, you know, we were talking about the servants and the response Mm -hmm. to what they were given. And, you know, the, the third servant hid it because he, his perception of the king was he was going to be, he, he was a harsh Harsh, man. And if, if that's our, if that's our perception of Jesus and we think, oh, you know, hellfire and brimstone, like, yeah, I'm going to look for a way to save myself. But if we, if we know Jesus, like this woman knew Jesus, Mm -hmm. she knew who he was. There's, I can't imagine giving up something so precious for somebody that I just think might be a good idea. Right. Like I'm, I'm going to know, I'm going to know that this man is here and he's going to save me, whatever he, however he says he's going to do it. I'm going to trust that that's what he's going to do. And I'm going to give it all. And I mean, that's how she knows. It's, it's, I mean, it's, I I guess we speculate in this, but, but that, that perfume was like her savings. It was, it was like a year's wages. It was, it was, I mean, it was her security, like blanket. It was her savings account. Mm. It was her, you know, it was her backup plan. It was her retirement, her 401k. It was everything. Ouch. Are we, (laughs) ouch. And she, li- and she poured it out. Because in comparison to Jesus, nothing, el- nothing else ha- held value. Earlier, Natasha, you made the statement that in, in reference to like the rejection of the kingdom, that it's not sometimes not, it's not always an outright like rejection. Um, and as soon as you said that, the the thought came into my mind in thinking about this specific like anointing scene the woman who anointed him is really the only one who didn't reject him the rest of them if you think about it like they were indignant they were upset which there's another conversation we can have about that but subsequent to this story we know that every single one of those men run away they flee they're gone I mean, they'll, they'll come back, right? So there, there is a return that happens. But in a moment when Jesus is being arrested and these predictions are no longer just words, but they are actually realities that are starting to set in, they run. And it, it's like they turn their back on the kingdom. They are faced with the reality, what am I going to do? And their instinct is to reject it. They run from it because they're afraid. Again, they come back. So I don't want to be too hard on them. But in this moment, there's only one person who sees the true value of who Jesus really is. And it's it's the unnamed woman. And that's all there is to it, which is, I don't know, it's, it's crazy because when you hold it next to the Judah story, I guess we always just think, well, it's only Judas that betrayed him. But Peter denied him three times also. Like there's a lot that there's all of the others had their own betrayal story that could be had as well. Judas is the most prominent, but the rest of them had those too. These are the people who spent time with him. Right. And physically saw these things. That's 
It's tough. Well, and it, it just highlights like we we can be spending time with Jesus. And the real trials of life as they come, they're going to test the authenticity of our faith. And at that moment, we're faced again with this choice, right? Do are we are we going to grow in faith? Are we are we going to are we going to trust him or are we going to run? Are we going to go our own way? Are we going to seek alternative advice? Um, how do we respond? And I think there's hope in knowing that, like you said, Nick, they all came back, right? Mm-hmm. Um, even Judas, I mean, in some of the accounts, it's pretty clear that he comes to a place well, of complete, wrongdoing. Right, yeah. complete remorse and repentance. Right. And so there's this hope that even if we choose the wrong way, we, we always have the opportunity to come back. He stands sure. there as, as the good father waiting expectantly for us to return home and to do what he's called us to do, even if we're late. Um, but I think, I think it just goes to show how vulnerable we really are even when we spend time in sure. his presence. I have to wonder if their question was honestly out of sincerity and not so much like if it was a question of after having heard all that Jesus has said up to this point and hearing his heart and his desire to, you know, to serve, if this question comes out of a place of servanthood. I mean, because they're asking, like, why why the waste? Like, why why would we do this? Then they hear the response, and after they hear the response, it's at that point that Judas is, at least in my mind, I rationalize, he's like, well, you know, kind of like was talked about earlier, like, well, I'm going to save myself in this scenario. Right, right. Because I feel like they're genuinely asking, like, well, wait a second, you just told us that we need to serve like, like you're serving, and so why would we waste all this money on this, this perfume when we could go and, and do all this good with, with the money that, you know, could be brought in from that. And so I feel like there's this like genuine questioning going on and and maybe I'm totally wrong, but just based off of what we know prior to this. No, I would, I would agree with that for sure. And so like, I feel like there's this genuineness and yet in that genuineness, Judas, as Brittany said, like, I'm going to take care of me because I don't see a, I don't see a way out here. Like, I I think even in the genuine questioning, there is still a misunderstanding of what Jesus is asking of them, mm-hmm. right? Like all along, he's asking for a heart change, and their concern is a an action. Their concern is an action. They're not thinking about the inward conversation. Right. They're just concerned about an action. Right. Like this woman just had an outward action that was super wasteful. What are you doing? And Jesus <laughs> is like, oh, like you've missed it again, guys. Yeah. Like I, I think that they're, they're well, my, my uh, mind says indignant. So their, their frustration, their, their indignance, is that a word? I don't know. Whatever. We'll go with it. Okay. <laughs> Um, but their their feelings towards the situation, I think, I think there is authenticity, and I think there is a a desire to understand and a a trying to understand what Jesus is saying. But I think right. there is still an element of they're still missing it, right? And Judas definitely misses it the most, right? Like he's the one who's just like way off the reservation because, and, and I think 
uh, we talked about this a little bit on Sunday where like all along they, they have this perception of what Messiah is. Right. And now Judas is come to the realization, the conclusion after hearing it all these times, Jesus is going to die. So I'm going to protect myself, but that also means he's not the Messiah that I, I think is coming. And so he's got to be done away with. Right. You know, I, as you were talking about the disciples' response to the woman, I couldn't help but think about how we as the church often become distracted by the actions of younger Christians or maybe less mature Christians or honestly maybe even more mature Christians that we just don't understand fully. Hmm. Um, And we judge their outward actions so strongly and so heavily, and yet their heart is one that's just gold. And we completely miss the heart because we're so fixated on this outward outward appearance. Um, I think about the story, and I don't know that we have time to go into it, but um, Hal has a story and that he shares, I think, just when he goes to summits. I don't think it's even in his books, um, but about little church and big church, right? And he, he talks about how in the little church, um, basically there is like this guy who got clean from drugs and a whole bunch of just kind of a, your, your typical, I mean, just miraculous life transformation story. Yeah. yeah. And so he starts this, this Bible study group in his home, um, with the assistance of his pasta, pa- pasta, 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 that's right. With the assistance of his pasta. And, um, and so they, they continue to meet and he brings all of his friends in there and they're just getting saved right and left. And they're just, they're working on holiness together. And there's one particular lady who shows up one week and she's just really sad. And, you know, she's, she's sharing that she has this problem that her and her husband, they keep getting in arguments and she keeps whacking him. She keeps smacking him. And, you know, like the, the next, you know, the next week they like ask her, okay, how's it going? How's it going? She shakes her head. No, no, no. It's not, not better. Not better. I I smacked him again. I smacked him again. Good. You know, and then like the next week, same thing, same thing. But then one week she comes in and she is just glowing. And so they got to hear like, what, what is that? Did you, did you like, did you not get in a fight with your husband this week? Did it was, did it go better? And she goes, oh no, but I only smacked him once. And she was just thrilled. I mean, and you know, as they're talking about this and they're talking about this church and what they're going through, Mm -hmm. he talks about how he can't bring this little church plant into the mainstream church that the guy who started all of this with the life transformation, the big church he attended, he can't bring them in because they would never understand that woman's story. They become so caught up on the fact that you smacked your husband that they would miss like the heart behind what has been going on in her life and the victory that that Jesus and the Holy Spirit has has worked in her life. And and so as you were talking about that, Nick, it just made me and I know that's, you know, a very extreme example, but I, I think I think about our kids oftentimes, you know, and I feel like sometimes I'm maybe I'm overly critical of of their behavior in in worship or or their, their responses to questions. Um, and so I think if I can be more, maybe more patient 
and listening and looking with the eyes of Jesus to hear the heart Mm. behind the action and behind the response that I might actually have a lot more to celebrate um, Mm. than I presently do because I'm missing. I'm, I'm missing it. Feels like last week, like the, you know, we talked about with the, the sheep and the goats and, and the, we talked about the judgment about how that's that's not our responsibility. Like, leave it to the judge to do the judging. Just keep focused on, like, the the task that's been placed before us or just loving Jesus. Um, so, I don't know. Which now makes this all the more ironic because he just said that, and then the disciples turn around and they're judging this woman. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so there's true. hope for us. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> mm. So one question that was brought up... Um, at the table that I was at on Sunday was this, um, the story of the woman anointing Jesus is different in almost every gospel. Is there, do you guys have any idea why that might be? Okay. So I noticed this as I was reading and specifically actually, as I was preparing the kids bulletin, um, for this past week. And so this story, if, if you're following along in your Bible and you want to check it out, um, cross references are Mark 14, one through 11. We, we see the same, um, set of stories. Um, also in Luke 22, one through six, and then John 12, one through 11. And so in each of these, there's different, different nuances to the story, but they're similar enough that they make you feel like they're possibly the same story. Um, and so there's kind of, a couple of different ways that scholars have looked at this. So one option is, is that these actually, some of the differences in the accounts may be a result of the fact that these are actually two isolated events or three isolated, different, different instances where a very similar type thing took place. Um, for example, I think in uh, John, it talks about how the oil is actually poured on the feet um, of Jesus, whereas both Mark and Matthew talk about it being poured on his head. So that's an example of kind of one of the differences you might run into. Um, also, John names names this wow. woman as Mary Magdalene, um, whereas Mark and Matthew leave this as an undefined woman. Um, and so we're kind of, so the, one possibility is that these are actually different stories and that um, that they can be viewed that way. Um, Another school of thought is that um, because the Gospels were written, not all of them firsthand, right on the spot accounts, but were actually written down after years of oral tradition, um, it's possible that some of the details maybe have been, um, I don't know, not remembered perfectly accurately. However, we can rely on the fact that in each of these stories, this truth, the truths we've been talking about thus the far, heart. the, the uh-huh. heart of this story is still right. the same. And so that is what's preserved. And so it, it gives us a picture into the God that we serve and what his expectation is for us. And so whether or not Jesus was anointed by his feet at his feet or at his head, whether it was Mary or some undisclosed person, whether, you know, whoever, whichever of the disciples, whether it was Judas only who was complaining or if it was all the disciples who were complaining, um, these details may not be 
super important to the overall message of the story. And so perhaps maybe they are the same, but the details don't matter as much. So again, two schools of thought, uh, one kind of saying, well, maybe they're different instances, events. And then the other saying, well, maybe some of the details are, 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 are scrambled a little bit just because of the oral tradition that occurred before the writing down of the gospels actually happened. So we have this first example then of the woman and her response to the kingdom. When, when coming face to face with the kingdom, she sees the exceeding value of it. And much like the earlier parable, um, goodness, that, that was months ago where, uh, they, the, the individual in the story sold everything they had so they could buy the, the land, right. That had that treasure in it, a surpassing value. This woman recognizes the value of the kingdom standing before her in the form of Jesus. And she pours everything out on him. And then we move on to the story of Judas and we have the second response, the, the, the other option for how we can respond when we come face to face with the kingdom. And his response is not one of embrace, but one of rejection. So I found two things in, in my study of, of this portion of the passage that I found interesting. And so one of them comes from Zechariah chapter 11, verse 12, where there's this talk about the shepherd. Um, and the shepherd says, you know, basically if, if I'm not worth it, then pay me 30 pieces of silver. And so like when they, when it says here in verse, um, verse 15 and asked, what are you willing to give me if I deliver him over to you? So they counted out for him 30 pieces of silver from then on Judas watched for an opportunity to hand him over. And so it's almost as if the shepherd was rejected in that passage in Zechariah for 30 pieces of silver. And it's the same thing happening. The, the shepherd is being rejected for 30 pieces of silver. What Judas betrayed Jesus for was worth less than what the woman gave up in her um, perfume to anoint Jesus with. You know, that was the thing that kind of hit me as we went through this. Like, what is Jesus worth to me? And, and even this was the conversation we had um, on Sunday, Nick. Like, what... It, like, what is my life doing to show the value that I that I've said that Jesus has um, more than just words? Um, this would be like that that you know the disciples where they think action like they're always thinking on action. And in my life, what is the action that shows that He has that that much value that I'm willing to give something of great value? I think we often, as a church, we ask ask this question. Um, well, really, it's Jesus's question um, after Peter, but um, after Peter denies him three times and then he's later At restored. His restoration. Right. Yeah. Uh, Jesus, you know, he asked Peter, do you love me more than these? Um, and so I, I feel like I feel like that question can be asked of us. And I think we do ask it regularly as a church of one another. But what are the these in our life? And I feel like that's kind of summing up, Derek, what you've shared on your heart. What are the these that are that I'm holding in my life that 
I may be hanging on to more tightly than I hang on to Jesus or that are keeping me from loving Jesus perfectly. Be sure to follow the Living Vertizano podcast to stay current on all our new releases. To learn more about the church at Riverstone, visit us at thechurchatriverstone.org.